I'm going to share some of the most awkward things I've ever had to share on, on Sunday morning. So uh, this has been one of the hardest teachings to ever prepare for. So um, you guys pray for me that I don't get more awkward than I need to, and then really pray that I don't go away from my notes. Because once I start to free associate, things get very, very scary. So we have been, we have been working this year. You know, this has been a very different year for us, obviously. And uh, so because of the things that we've seen, we've taken this year, and we've been focusing in on things like Bible prophecy, the end times. We've been talking about faith. What does it mean to live, uh, actually believe God for more than just being nice people and, and trusting God for some things, which is why we chose to begin the study through First and Second Thessalonians. And the reason for that is because First and Second Thessalonians are very condensed as far as uh, how much is there regarding end times prophecy. So we've been looking at that. And we've shared some things um, this year how the end times would involve Israel becoming a nation again. Israel's the only nation on the planet that existed as a nation, ceased to exist as a nation in 70 AD, but throughout the Bible it talks about in the last days Israel would become a nation again. And so they became a nation again in uh, 1948. Now when we get to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to take a week and we're just going to walk through all the passages that point to Israel becoming a nation in the last days and how that would begin uh, the last of the last last days, we might say. So we'll talk about that when we get there. And you'll recall that many times uh, throughout this year, we've looked at Matthew 24. And I put this there on your, your outline. Once again, if you'll just endure me this one more time as uh, we highlight this. But you'll recall, it's a few days before Jesus is going to go to the cross. His disciples come to him. He said some things that... Um, that really perplexed them. So it says there in Matthew 24, it says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They asked three questions. When will these things take place? Sign of your coming, end of the age. And so Jesus is going to begin to answer those three questions. But as he does, what we are going to notice is that in his response, he doesn't say when they ask about the sign of his coming and the end of the age, he doesn't say, why are you asking that? Uh, that doesn't matter. I mean, it all pans out in the end. Focus on other things. That's not really important. He doesn't say that. What he says, and uh, you can see there on your outline, he says, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. And uh, some of your translations, if you were to read that, say, take heed that nobody misleads you, that you're not deceived. But the idea is this is very important to Jesus. And so he answers their question, taking two chapters. And he begins, and he, he shares some things about Israel becoming a nation again. And, and, uh, but then he says, and I've, I've condensed this a little bit, he says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, and the end is not yet for nation, and we notice that word nation there is ethnos, will rise against nation or ethnos, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, and what's that next word? 
pestilences and earthquakes in various places and all these things are the beginning of birth pangs. And I know you've heard me say this so many times before, but Jesus likens these events as birth pangs in that last generation. And, and, and he, when he talks about this and he uses the term birth pangs, the idea is that you have this very long pregnancy, and, uh, but at a certain time, labor kicks in. And when labor kicks in, those contractions begin. And those contractions become closer and closer together, and they become more and more intense. And uh, so we've seen some of those things. Uh, We talked about earthquakes and how those are increasing. And we mentioned how in our lifetime, we'd never seen a tsunami before. But in 2004, we we saw a tsunami and we were aghast uh, because we'd never seen anything like that. But, you know, that was on the other side of the world, you know, one time. But then in 2011, once again, we saw in Japan. And uh, then it talks about famines and pestilences. And so certainly there have been pestilences before, but this is the first time where the entire world, it seems, has been shut down because of a pestilence. And uh, these things are going to increase as we go. We talked about nation would rise against nation, but that word there is ethnos. And uh, so uh, we, what, you have this word, uh, we might say ethnic or racial, and the idea is about the time we feel like we have this whole thing figured out, these things will erupt again. He says that those are going to be the birth pangs that take place. And then on the other hand, he says, while that's going on, in that same chapter, he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. They were eating, they were drinking, and I've underlined they were marrying and giving in marriage. And then he describes, he says, then there'll be two in the field, two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. Uh, one will be taken and the other will be left. And so you have, you have these birth pains going on and, and then you have two in the field, two in bed. So it's, 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 it's going to be business as usual in a very unusual time. So as we're seeing some of these things take place, you know, tomorrow most of us are just going to get up and we're going to go to work, but we're living in a, in a very unique time. So I, I, I thought I would just have a little bit of fun today. As, as I shared a, a few moments ago, my daughter Abigail got married. And uh, when she went to get her wedding dress, uh, they made everybody in the store wear a mask in order to purchase. So here you have Mommy, Abby, and Emma there in a mask. Who would have ever thought that we'd be sending our daughters to buy wedding dresses wearing a mask? And uh, then this is her in her wedding dress wearing her mask. Isn't she adorable? Yeah, well, well, check out this one. On the wedding day, we didn't make them wear a mask on, on that day. So, and I just want to say that, that I made that. So it's a, it's a, look, the one on the right. Somebody else made the one on, on the left. But the, I should get like an honorary PhD in art, okay? Just, I make good looking babies. So, so the idea is that you and I, we live in this very unique generation. We're seeing things that the world has not seen 
in 2,000 years. Israel became a nation and all these things going on. So again, that's why we've chosen to study through 1 Thessalonians and then 2 Thessalonians. Now again, as I said, these two books have the most condensed end times prophecy that you'll find just about anywhere in, in the New Testament. So th- there's a great focus in on the last days. And one of the things that we've mentioned is that every chapter ends with a reference to Jesus coming back. So if you would indulge me just for a moment, would you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and uh, look at verse 10 and you notice how the chapter ends. It says, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So there's a wrath to come, but we're going to be rescued from that. Uh, and and uh, he's coming back is the idea there. And then chapter 2, verse 19, it says, for who is our hope, our joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. So every chapter refers to Jesus coming back. You go to chapter 3, verse 13, and it says that he might establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And we talked about that. And then in chapter 4, we talked about how Paul taught about what we would call the rapture of the church. And uh, there in verse 17, I put verse 17 on your outline. And uh, verse 17, it says this, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. And that word in the Latin in the Latin Vulgate is rapiamur, which we get the word rapture. The Latin, the Latin Bible was the only Bible that was accessible for over a thousand years. So our English word comes from this Latin word rapture, which just means to be caught up. So that's where that word comes from. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. So this is where this teaching of the rapture comes from. Now, I, just because we're not going to be able to do this too many more times, can I highlight something just one more time? Would you notice verse 13 in chapter 4? Verse 13, as Paul begins to talk about the rapture of the church, he begins by saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed. And uh, this is the beginning of this conversation. So Paul says, what I'm telling you now, I don't want you to be uninformed. Some of your translations might say ignorant of. This is important. Not only is it important, but Paul goes on to say in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I love in verse 15, he says, this comes straight from the Lord. It's important and it comes straight from the Lord. I'm not making this up. This is what the, the Lord has revealed. Verse 17, he says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He says, those of us who are alive and remain, that refers to a final generation. Somebody's going to be alive and remaining. At a certain point, we're called up, we're caught up, we meet the Lord in the air, and uh, thus we will always be with the Lord. But then verse 18, he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. The idea of the rapture, Paul says it's important. I don't want you uninformed. It comes straight from the Lord, and it's given to be a comfort to you. 
Sadly, you and I live in a time period where much of church world does not talk about this. The very thing that Paul said, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. So we, we do talk about that. Well, chapter 5 talks about the, the tribulation period, and which comes right after the rapture. And so we took some time to go through that. And uh, Paul said, I, you know, this should not catch you by surprise. You should see that. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But then in verse 9 of chapter 5, Paul, after he talked about this time period of the tribulation, he reminds us and he says, for God has not destined us for wrath. We're not going to go through that time period. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will together, we will live together with him. We will live together with him. So he's talked about all of this end time stuff and we've looked at that, all these references. And um, he's talked about this, we're not destined for wrath. But when you come to verse 11, and verse 11 opens up the last of this chapter, the first word in most of your Bibles will be the word therefore. How many of you have the word therefore? Good. Now, some of you, you have the word wherefore, which is just the old King James, the way that they said therefore 500 years ago. Same word, same word. Therefore, when you have the word therefore, you always want to stop and ask, what is it therefore? And for Paul, typically therefore means based upon everything that I have said up to this point, do this. Therefore, therefore. So to this church that is all about the end times, he is going to say, Therefore, uh, as he talks about that verse 11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So when Paul says just as you also are doing, Paul is going to share some things that we would say would be preventative rather than curative. Uh, They're already encouraging But Paul sees that there's the possibility that the church might drift away because of some of the things that they're facing. So to head that off at the past, he says, I want you to keep encouraging just as you also are doing. Then the rest of the chapter is going to be how we live this out as believers. And he's writing to this church that is all about the end times. So I'm going to suggest to you that uh, this is how we live this out for the church that is actually in the end times. And I will see that as we go. Once again, as I've said so many times before, there's so much that could be said in this chapter. Each line, and I encourage you to read through the chapter this week, uh, each line could be a standalone uh, sermon. And uh, each week, again, the big question is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Today, I'm going to focus in on just a couple of verses And that these verses are the verses on how we practically live this out. And uh, then next week, we're going to hopefully finish the chapter where Paul focuses in on what we might call the supernatural aspect of our faith. And keep in mind that this is written to uh, about the end times. And so I'm going to suggest to you it's to the church of the end times. Certainly for, for the entire church, but I think that there's going to be some things that are specifically here for us. Now, as have I put you to sleep yet? 
So as we get into this, it's important to remind ourselves, who is it that Paul is writing to? When you study the Bible, you'll, say that, you'll see that Paul says certain things to certain groups. So you always want to know who the audience is that he's speaking to. So there on your outline, when Paul came to this town of Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue, and here, here's the outcome of that in Acts chapter 17, 4. It says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a, and I've underlined this, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. So the majority of those that Paul is going to write to are what we would call God-fearing Greeks. They had not converted to Judaism, um, but, but they were God-fearing. They're there at the synagogue. Some, it says, of the Jewish people there at the synagogue believed, but the majority of them would be the God-fearing Greeks. Now in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, there's another detail. And Paul says this, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So when Paul meets them, they're God-fearing Greeks, but they began as idol worshipers, as, as pagans. Somewhere along the way, they became disillusioned with what was taking place at the pagan temples. And they saw something in the God of Israel that was very different than what they experienced at the pagan temple. The God of Israel actually cared about his people. And his book taught people how to live successful, prosperous, good lives and, and, and how, how you do life. And this God, the God of the Jewish people, wanted to see his people do well. And so he, he wrote about that. And so when they worshiped idols, those idols didn't actually care about them. So when you went to the, the idol's temple, uh, you weren't going there because that idol loved you and cared about you and wanted to see you do well. You went there and you brought your sacrifice so that hopefully they didn't destroy your crop. And you had this belief that maybe if you sacrificed enough, you could appease that God and maybe, just maybe, they would actually do you a favor, which was very different than the God of the Jewish people. The God of the Jewish people was concerned for his people. So the time, by the time that Paul arrives in Thessalonica, these God-fearing Greeks had walked away from idol worship and they were worshiping the God of the Bible. Now it's important to know that they were worshiping the God of the Bible, but they had not converted to Judaism because to convert to Judaism required a certain surgery and they were not ready for that kind of conviction. There's a reason why you do some things on the eighth day and not when you're 30 years of age. And so, so they, they had not converted. So Paul shows up and he adds to what they know about this God that they're following and he tells them about the Messiah, the Christ, and salvation, and what God wanted to do in their lives. And so a large number of them respond. Well, unlike the pagan gods that they had served before, there's a point in this book, and we're certainly going to see in this chapter, that, that Paul really wants to drive home. And so I want you to write this down, and this is woven throughout this entire book, but 
Unlike the pagan, the pagan gods that they have served, the church is a family. And you want to write that down. It's a very different relationship. So if you would just very quickly, just to highlight this, in verse 12, uh, I want you to underline the word brothers or brethren or however your Bible says it. But we request of you brethren. And then if you go down to verse 14, uh, it says we urge you brethren. We urge you brethren. Then you go down to verse 25 and it says brethren, pray for us. And then verse 26, greet all the brethren with the holy kiss. And then verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord, have this letter read to all the brethren. And we'll talk about that next week. Now earlier in the book, Paul would say this there in your outline. He says, we prove to, you gent- we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother. And then another time he says, exhorting and encouraging you, each, uh, each of you as a father. When, when Paul describes, describes the relationships within the church, it's, it's always a, a family. He never says, I'm the general. He says, we, we were like, we were like you know, a father or a mother. He doesn't say, I was your father. He doesn't say, we were your mother. But he describes it in family terms. So as we go through this, you want to keep in mind that this is very foreign or very new to the Thessalonians. When they went to the pagan temple, they weren't talking about having this fatherly relationship with their pagan deity. They weren't brothers together in this. So this is very, very foreign to them. So they weren't connected with one another. You, know, you, you brought your sacrifice and you left and you just went upon, upon your way. So being brethren, that means that they have a common parent. And so Paul is also going to drive home there in your outline. You're all sons of light and sons of day. And so certainly uh, Paul's talking a great deal about now you're children of God, you're, uh, you're part of the family. It's a very, very different ex- existence than anything that you've had at the pagan temple. And we're going to talk about that more as we go. So in this book, which is all about the end times, Paul emphasizes their family relationship to one another, which was very different than what they had at the pagan temple. And so he's going to begin and he's going to say, so as, as a family, as a family, um, this is how you're to behave towards the rest of the family. Therefore, based upon all that we've talked about, the end times and all that, here's how you're going to live this out. So um, the first part he's going to talk about is how, as a family, they're to treat the pastors. And, and uh, so let's, let's, <laughs> let's read that. <laughs> Verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then I I want you to just underline that last line there. Live in peace with one another. Have you ever been in a church where not everybody was living in peace with one another? You know, that's, that's very, very common. So um, you and I, we live in a day where um, that tends to erode the esteem and the importance 
of what takes place here. Um, I grew up in a family, and my aunt would always say, she would say, you know, Danny, if you can't do anything else, you can always go into the ministry, uh, because her mentality is that anybody in the ministry is actually an idiot, and uh, sometimes, you know, we would drive home, and the conversation in the front seat would be, that guy's such an idiot. I mean, why does he do that? And, and just constantly putting down the pastor. And, and sometimes when we, we do that, what we do is we uh, impregnate our children with the idea that those who do this really aren't all that bright. And then they grow up and they don't go to church. And you go, why don't you go to church? Well, because the last 20 years, you've been telling me what an idiot the pastor is. You want to be very, very careful about how you, you handle that. Does that make sense? You'll never see a pastor in the media, in a movie, ever portrayed as just a solid guy who loves his wife, loves his children, and is trying to do the right thing. They're, they're always portrayed with there's some evil lurking thing. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that in all the rapture movies, the pastor's always there after the rapture every <laughs> single time? So... So, I mean, that's, that's just, you know, sort of the media does that. And they put that out and they put that out. So, um, so here, Paul tells this church. Now, again, this church is only six months old as Paul writes this. And, and I don't want us to miss the context of what Paul is saying to this church. Um, there in chapter one, Paul told the church that they came to the Lord and it resulted in severe suffering. In the NIV, it says it that way. And then the New American says, with much tribulation. This is a church that's going through a great deal of persecution. And then in chapter two, there on your outline, uh, he says, you also endured the same sufferings. Is that on your outline? So, so keep in mind that this is a church. It's a new church. And, and yet they're going through persecution. It's been a very, very difficult time. And so the church here, and again, the church is only about six months old. The church is growing. People are getting saved. But, but here's the thing, guys. Their leadership had never navigated through persecution. This is a very new thing for them. And so here they are navigating through persecution of the church. How do we, how do we handle this? How do we go forward with this? And the reality is everyone has a different opinion about how the leadership, should, the leadership should navigate through this persecution as people are going through a very difficult time. And so Paul wanted to prevent them from becoming polarized uh, because the leadership's not handling it the way that they think that it should be handled. Does that make sense? One of my favorite stories in church history, you know, when you go to seminary, you have to take a year of church history. Church history is an amazing subject. Church history, you get one thing out of church history. God has to be in the church because no other organization could make as many mistakes as we've made and still be going. Uh, nobody could do that unless God was actually in it. But one of my favorite stories, uh, it's commonly referred to as the traditors or the traitors. Um, as you know, Christianity was illegal for the first 300 years, and uh, the Roman government would find out that the Christians, they had these scriptures, and they were handwritten. So they'd get a letter, and they'd, they'd all handwrite it. 
Well, they knew that those scriptures were having an impact on the people who, who had those. And they would find out who the Christians are and they would send the Roman soldiers to their house. So here these Roman soldiers show up, they got their swords and their spears, and, and they're saying, you hand over your scriptures or we're going to arrest you and terrible things are going to happen and we're going to go through your house and we're going to, we're going to take everything, you know. And uh, so when they would show up, the Christians realized that the average Roman soldier couldn't read. They were, for the most part, illiterate. And, and so many of the Christians, as the, the Romans showed up and said, you give us your scriptures, they'd go in their house and they'd pull out their old Life magazine and their Palm Beach Post and some old letters that they have, and they say, well, you got us here. You know, take them. Fine. And the Romans would take them, and they knew that the Romans couldn't read them, and then the Romans would go and they would burn them. Well, other Christians said, you, persecution showed up, and you were a coward, and you didn't take that when that showed up on your door, and, and so you are a traitor, you're a traitor to the faith. And, and, and so uh, there was this division in the early church how you would handle that. Now, if you wonder what team I would be on, uh, they'd be calling me a traditor. I'd be giving them the Palm Beach Post or something like that. I knew they couldn't read it. So they accused them of not navigating through that the right way. Now, on the other hand, 2,000 years later, we have some early manuscripts that we read and we use uh, that we say this is what it actually said 2,000 years ago because somebody didn't give that over to uh, the Roman soldiers. And so which one was right? So here in this church where they're facing persecution, there's different opinions about how to do that. This book is written, and it's all about the end times. I believe that there's a certain aspect that is written to the church that is actually in the end times. Right now, in our world, and I want to be very careful how I say this, and this is the awkward part. So um, are you ready for awkward? Yeah, you're saying go for it because you're here and you probably know where I'm going with this all day. Um, for the first time in our world, we're facing a pandemic. And uh, there are very strong opinions as to how you navigate through this pandemic as a pastor. What, what, what do you do? We, as a church, have chosen, and we've said, we're going to be open. And uh, if, if you want to social distance, you're adults, you do that. Uh, if you come up to me and you want to shake my hand, I shake your hand. If you want to hug, I hug. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of on the other end of things. And this church is going to be open uh, up until they show up with tanks outside, okay? So... All right. So, <laughs> many of my pastor friends who love me and they love our church and they would do anything for our church, anything. But they've chosen to stay closed and as they pray before the Lord, they believe that's the right thing to do. And they're trying to navigate through this as best they know how. We have a certain theological position. 
I believe that when Jesus said, lay your hands on the sick and they will recover, we believe that. When he said, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means harm you, I'm standing on that. In Psalm 91, when he says that he delivers us from the deadly pestilence and I'm not afraid of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or he says that no plague comes near my tent, I'm taking my stand on that. But although I might disagree with my friends, they're trying to navigate through this too. And uh, we've had some wonderful discussion. All of us, all of us, no matter which way you choose to go in this, we are all receiving (laughs) some less than encouraging emails. So for my friends who are saying we're not ready to open, uh, their emails are, you know, you, you know, you have no faith, what God do you believe in, you know, no, 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 no. Well, they're praying and they're trying to navigate through this. And they've said, right now we're going to stay closed. And uh, they're receiving a lot of uh, very, very painful, scathing uh, remarks. We are open. So we're not getting the emails that they're getting. Our emails that are coming in are saying, you know, you're so irresponsible. Don't you love your community? You're, you know, on and on and on. Well, yes, we all do. But we've never faced this before, and so we're all trying to navigate through. We've chosen to take our stand here, and uh, they've chosen to take their stand over here. And so we're, many of us as pastors are in constant communication, and there's even a group of pastors of some very prominent churches that, that uh, you would know, and, and we do these Zoom conferences, and, you know, and we're talking these things through, and we're one of the only churches that are, that are open. And they say, so Dan, what do you do when people say you're irresponsible and you're doing this and you should be doing that? I just say, well, I tell them to go to your church. <laughs> but they don't. And I don't want you to. I don't want you to. So I, I, I just want to uh, just say, g- give some people some grace. They're all trying to figure it out, okay? We stand here, they stand there, but it's one body of Christ. So moving on, um, I love how he says in verse 14, he says, live in peace with one another. And so to the pastors, he said, or to the church, as you relate to the pastors, you know, do this. But to this church that's also in persecution, he says, now here's how I want you to treat one another. So verse 14, he says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek, that, seek after that which is good for one another, I've underlined one another, and for all people. So this here, this is not writing to the pastors, this is writing to the brethren. This, this is all of us, how he wants us to, to live this out. There are three groups of people here who need to be loved as family, as family in this time to this church that is going through a, a persecution. 
And the first group in verse 14, he says, uh, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. So admonish the unruly. That word unruly there, I just wanted to highlight something. Uh, The word in the Greek is ataktos, and and, uh, most of your dictionaries would translate it as disorderly. If you have the NIV, it will say those who are idle, and there's a good case for that. Uh, The complete Jewish Bible says those who are lazy, uh, but a literal translation would say disorderly. And the the idea is that um, they're Uh, you can use this word in in a number of different ways, but these would be people who are within the church. They're disorderly, they're disruptive, they're divisive, and uh, they're facing a situation, and it's very easy for them as they polarize to begin to, to attack those who aren't holding to their opinion. And uh, so Notice he says the word warn, at least in my translations, is warn or admonish, rather. And that word means to caution or reprove gently. Everybody underline the word gently. They're brothers, uh, but they're becoming disorderly in some of the things that they're saying, some of the things that they're doing. And this is speaking to the congregation. This is not speaking to the pastors, it's to the congregation. So you want to write this down. You He calls us to lovingly have the hard conversation with the spiritually disobedient. The spiritually disobedient. So to the church uh, in the end times, many times we are quick to protest those outside the church because they're not living like Christians, but we're very uncomfortable having the hard conversations with the brothers and sisters in the church who are living a disorderly life that would be spiritually disobedient. Interesting that he says that to the church, which is all about the end times. So to lovingly confront the disobedient, the spiritually disobedient, and then verse 14 again, he says, we urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, the faint-hearted, And uh, we're going to say those are the ones who are struggling with discouragement. You want to write that down. They're Um, faint-hearted. It's a compound word, oligos, psychos, or sukos, and it just means small psyche. Um, And and, uh, they're just going through a difficult time. Remember remember that Paul wrote, and we looked at this verse a minute ago, that you endured the same sufferings. They're going through a difficult time. And this is having an effect on people. They're losing their jobs, their homes, their family members. And so it's a little bit discouraging. And so you and I are living in a time where brothers and sisters in Christ, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their homes. It's a difficult time. And uh, they're going to need some encouragement. So you want to make sure that you're encouraging those people who are going through a difficult time. They don't need to be told, man up, kick it in gear, Uh, they need some encouragement. Does that make sense? And then number three, let me read verse 14 again. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Help the weak. And uh, go ahead and write down, help the weak just means meet needs. That word is a very interesting word, and, and it's translated different ways, but it means strengthless, it can mean um, a moral weakness, and you want to keep in mind that this is a church that's come out of paganism. They've only been believers for a certain period of time. It hasn't been years, about six months. And so they might not be completely where they should be. 
Uh, it's translated as a more feeble, sick, without strength. Uh, Thayer's translates it as unable to achieve anything great. So, so some are having a, a time, they're going through an economic hardship, they're exhausted by what they're facing. And so Paul here says, don't just encourage them, help them, help them. And you know, your, your family, your family. So to the pastors, he says, live at peace. But here Paul concludes at the last part, and I want you to underline verse 14 at the last part, be patient with everyone. Remember, this is a church that's under persecution. Would you agree that not everybody grows at the same speed that you want them to grow? Uh, it, and, and wouldn't you agree that you've always thought that by this time in your life, in your spiritual life, that you'd be a little bit further down the road, you'd have a little bit more together? Am I the only one? <laughs> and, and, and so we're all there. And, and so the, they're growing, they're going through a difficult time, so you know, let's, let's help them get there. Verse 15, he says, See that no one repays another with evil, uh, for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And you just want to write down, one another is inside the church and all people are those outside the church. You know, they were going through persecution, we're going through a pandemic. And so it's very easy when you're under that kind of stress to, to get into attack mode very quickly. So you want to just think represent the Lord, but this is to those who are living uh, in that church where it's all about the end times, I think to the church that's in the end times. Now next week, did you find that at least interesting today? So next week we're going to look at more of the supernatural aspect of our faith. And so I want you to read ahead and uh, think through some things as we come back together next week. If you're here today, and you've never invited Jesus into your life, as we close today, you want to do that now. These things are happening before our very eyes, and you don't, you don't want to live in this time separated in relationship with him. So as we pray, you have the opportunity to invite Jesus into your life. Let's pray. Father, as we live in this time where we see all of these things happening, we pray, God, that, that uh, you would help us to represent you well, help us to be patient, uh, to help, to, to be kind, maybe, Lord, not to be divisive or so polarized against other believers as all are trying to figure this out. Lord, we pray that for those of us who have not come to that place of relationship with you, Jesus, we invite you into our lives. We ask you to come in, give us your salvation. We want to follow you. We want that relationship now and through all eternity. And so we receive you today. And the Bible says if you invite him in, he comes in and he never leaves. Father, keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.